I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. Listening to Cauldron. I'm your host, Cullen. In today's episode, we're going to go to the way, way back machine and take it all the way back to ancient Greece. Uh, we're going to go to August 2nd, 338 BC, and the Battle of Chaeronea. Before we do that, uh, just some quick housekeeping and then we'll get stuck right in. So, next up, will be our second theory cast, but the first real theory cast. And that'll be Angelo and I kind of breaking down a couple of different emails and our thoughts on the previous battle casts and just the different events that we think would have happened if the battle had gone different. So stay tuned for that. And then we have the second season of Cauldron coming up with the first week of February And we are going to be tackling um, some really interesting battles over the next few weeks. Uh, There will be a Napoleonic battle. There's the bombing of Dresden, I think, at the end of the month. And then we've got uh, a raid in Deerfield Mass to cover during the colonial time. And up first, we have a Portuguese naval battle off the coast of India that is incredibly important and really, really plays a huge role in world history, but that for some reason just doesn't get much coverage. So stay tuned for that. That should be interesting. My main sources for the Battle of Chaeronea, I will post them up off the top of my head. I don't have them and I don't have them in my notes. So yeah, I'll post them on the website or you can always just contact me on Instagram or Facebook and I will send those over. Okay, so let's uh, let's go into that way, way back machine and take a look at a battle where Greek military supremacy was basically supplanted by Macedonian weapons, innovation, and tactical boldness. And also, at Chaeronea, the path to a Hellenistic world really began. So let's go back to August 2nd, 338 BC, and take a look at the Battle of Chaeronea. Although the herald called on everybody to declare their minds as to what was to be done, yet none appeared. The people, therefore, in great terror, cast their eyes on Demosthenes, who now arose and bade them to be courageous and forthwith to send envoys to Thebes to treat with the Boeotians to join in the defense of the common liberty. For there was no time, he said, to send an embassy for aid elsewhere, since Philip would probably invade Attica within two days, end quote. And that's from Diodorus Siculus, or Diodorus Siculus, in the first century BCE. And I like Diodorus uh, a lot. He, I used him quite a bit in the Battle of Magnesia. 
He's a very, uh, he writes dramatically. So uh, he's a good, uh, one of the good ancient sources. It's not very dry. Timing plays a huge role in warfare. It can be the difference between victory and defeat, war and peace, life and death. A good general usually knows how to bend time, how to stretch it, and when called for, how to speed it up or slow it down. The great generals can seemingly make more time and are adept at dominating and manipulating their enemy's perception of time. The quote you heard above uh, is an excellent example of this. The, the famed orator and demagogue Demosthenes is urging his audience to act not from a position of control and power, but instead he is reacting based on a timeline that Philip has created in Demosthenes' imagination. By making the enemy believe they have plenty of time or not enough, inspired generals have been able to use time to whip competent, well-prepared, and even at times numerically superior opponents' forces forever. The loss of time has been considered by many of the best commanders as an unforgivable crime, and with good reason as battles, campaigns, and even entire wars have been won or lost based on how time was managed by a given side. Napoleon said, quote, The loss of time is irretrievable in war. The excuses that are advanced are always bad ones, for operations go wrong only through delays, end quote. At Chaeronea, we see a master at work. From the strategic to the tactical, Philip II of Macedon used his knowledge of the enemy and his grasp of timing to force his opponent into overreaching and, in so doing, self-destruction. It's also here at Chaeronea that Philip passes the torch to his young son Alexander, soon to be the great, who will eventually surpass his father in understanding how crucial timing can be. In fact, Alexander goes on, and we'll discuss this further when looking at his specific battles, but he basically goes on to use perfectly timed cavalry charges in every one of his great field battles. Before we dissect these battle-changing moments, let's set the table and get a better idea of the situation that forced a loose coalition of Greeks to take on the budding military might of Macedonia. Philip II is one of history's true game-changers. He appears almost out of nowhere, and the world is never quite the same after. Taken as a hostage at a young age by the Thebans, Philip learned at the feet of some of the greatest military minds of the day. And just fair warning, I will probably butcher these names, so please forgive me. Two of those military luminaries that he learned from were Pelopidas and Epaminondas. It's clear from Philip's tactics, his use of the oblique order in particular, as well as his understanding of deception and his use of timing as a weapon, that he not only met and learned from these men, but that he admired them and absorbed every scrap of knowledge or experience he could from them. Exposure to these titans of war from one of the most dominant cities in all of Greece 
nurtured in Philip an honest admiration and a deep envy of the Greek world. He loved and coveted the culture so much that he made it his life's mission to unite the Greeks under one banner and carry forward it into Achaemenid Persia to make the known world Greek. Philip wasted no time, and after four years as a hostage, he returned to Macedonia and began the process of unification and modernization. Macedonia was, and is, even now, a geographically tough place to live. In turns mountainous and deeply scarred by rivers, barren and densely forested, bitingly cold or bone-dry, Travel has always been fairly difficult and slow, to say the least, which led to the early widespread use of the horse, which will play a key role later on. Combine that with a society built on agriculture and with few urban centers, it becomes easy to understand how a strong aristocracy used heavy cavalry for the time period to dominate the politics of ancient Macedonia and eventually all of Greece. You see, Greece was made up of a firmament of small but powerful city-states, with a few that stood out as true powerhouses militarily, culturally, or economically. Thebes, Sparta, and of course Athens led the way in the ancient Greek world, but they had all spent the last 100 years or so beating the ever-living piss out of each other in the Peloponnesian Wars and various other small, exhausting, costly little conflicts. Philip recognized that if he could build up his forces and strike sooner rather than later, he had a chance of knocking them out piece by piece before they could make, f uh, make a full recovery and bear down on Macedonia. Philip realized one of the biggest weaknesses facing his own country was its inability to muster an army quickly, or with any real semblance of order. If Philip wanted to toss his hat in the ring and try to supplant one or all of these powerful city-states, he would need to be able to form a large, well-trained, and well-equipped army quickly, and beyond that, he would need some way of keeping it in the field. Philip addressed both of these issues in such a brilliant and ingenious way that it's worth taking a look at, if only for a better understanding of his son and pupil, Alexander. Greek armies of the time were made up of the classic phalanx, a tightly packed rectangular box of heavily armed and armored citizen soldiers. They would need to be wealthy enough to supply their own kit, and in most cases were only available to fight at certain times of the year. In fact, the training of each unit would be left to the individual unit's commander. Also known as hoplites, these men would fight for their city-states out of duty to each other and in order to protect their own personal interest or stake in the well-being of the state. This created armies of high morale, rife with a sense of civic responsibility, but with little staying power on campaign and none whatsoever in defeat. This explains why most battles were fairly quick affairs, often only lasting minutes after the first bloodletting. Combine that with the inherent weaknesses of the phalanx formation, which basically was that uh, if they were 
taken on from the front, there was nothing that could stop a phalanx. But if there was a gap in the line or if there were attacks on the flanks or rear, things went went bad quickly and, and entire units would begin to waver and then their formation usually was completely compromised and the whole phalanx would crumble. Philip's solution seems simple and obvious, but really it started one of those little military revolutions that affects us to this very day. He recognized that a standing army, trained, housed, and equipped by him, would allow far more control over his own country and would afford him some of that priceless resource every general covets, time. Instead of slowly mustering from the far-flung dells and wooded gullies or mountain hamlets, his army would be centered in one or two main locations, easy to call upon and use when needed. The training process would be more uniform and allow for a greater cohesion among separate units from all over Macedonia. Unlike the Greek states, who were just as likely to bicker and fight among themselves as the enemy, the Macedonians spent time training and living together year-round, so regardless of where they came from, they fought as one. This idea of a professional army assembled to serve the king year-round had been tried in a few places, such as Sparta, where the army was the state and the state was the army. But for the most part throughout history, to this point, it had never really taken root. The brilliance was not so much in the idea, but rather in the execution. Philip's model would be handed to his son Alexander, who passed it on to the successors, Rome would improve upon it, Charlemagne would tweak it, and every major or minor country to this very day has a standing army that Philip would recognize in an instant. The first problem solved, Philip still needed to tackle his second problem, money. Now that he had this shiny new toy, Philip would need to figure out how the hell to pay for it. You see, Macedonia was an underdeveloped country. The Attic Greeks went so far as to think of Macedonians as uncultured barbarians, dirty and uncouth. As an agriculturally based economy, Macedonia tended to be fairly cash-strapped, and the populace was made up of people from the land that, though hard-working, were for the most part poor. There were some very productive mines, but the majority of the money and resources from them were going to foreign states. Putting a phalanx of farmhands, miners, and peasants in the field against seasoned hoplites was going to be suicide no matter how long they lived or trained together. Philip simply could not afford to arm his entire force and to give them the requisite weight to withstand a phalanx head-on. He needed, to some kind, he needed some kind of countermeasure to the enemy's armor that would be cheap and quick. Like all good ideas, again, Philip came up with a simple solution. Philip created the Sarisa. The traditional hoplite duro was between seven and nine feet long. But Philip's Sarisa was a whopping 13 to 21 feet in length. 
This would allow for all five of the front ranks to make contact with the enemy simultaneously, basically bringing fire superiority at the point of contact. These supersized spears were typically made of ash for its strength and flexibility and could weigh up to 15 pounds. Built with a metal coupling in the center of the Sarisa, it could be broken down into two sections for easier transportation. Both ends of this fearsome weapon played a key role in killing the enemy. The spearhead would have been around 20 inches long and weighed nearly 3 pounds with a wide, deadly sharp iron blade perfect for thrusting and jabbing into an enemy's face and eyes. The butt spike came in around 2.5 pounds and would be slammed into the ground using the earth's weight to impale the horses and riders when defending against enemy cavalry charges. So how does an extra-large spear save money for Philip's Macedonians, you may be asking? Well, for one, the Sarisa is so massive in length and weight that it takes two hands to carry and use, meaning shields are out. But how do they protect themselves, you might follow up. It's believed that there may have been a very small shield akin to a buckler or even some kind of shield contraption draped from the neck and manipulated with the elbow or forearm. Either way, the cost would have been significantly smaller than the traditional oblong hoplon shield of most contemporary Greek states. Philip also didn't need to worry about the cuirass and other forms of body armor, instead opting for a light leather jerkin, and tunic which naturally saved his treasury even more money. The dense nature of the phalanx combined with the impact tug-of-war nature of battle meant hand-to-hand -hand combat usually happened only when one side broke and the rout began. If you can reach the enemy with your spear ten feet before they can reach you, odds are you are not the one routing and so armor would just weigh you down. Another benefit of the Sarisa design is that after the first five rows, the rest of the phalanx would have their weapons standing straight up, which would create an effectively, uh, but by no means perfect, barrier to arrows and projectiles. Like a low-rent primitive missile defense system, the enemy's arrows would get tangled and lost in the forest of Sarisas, expanding, expending their killing energy on the ash staffs and iron blades. Check out Hans Delbruck's Warfare in Antiquity. That's where I got a good amount of that information. So uh, definitely, obviously, Hans Delbruck is um, a fantastic military historian, and check him out. Uh, with his modified weapons technology and a streamlined and cohesive army at his hand, Philip solidified his power base at home. He also began the process of gaining his short-term and localized objectives in order to grow his war chest, train his men, and weaken his opponents. His mastery of deception and again the ability to control the perception of time put him in an excellent position to pick off key targets. One example of Philip's real politic approach came when he offered a trade city for city to his future enemy, Athens. Philip needed a port city to boost the Macedonian economy as well as to act as a major supply station for his army, and there was really no better port city for this 
than Pydna. The problem is that it was at that time owned by Athens, so Philip offered a straight trade his city for uh, 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 his city Amphipolis for Pydna. And when the Athenians agreed, he quickly garrisoned Pydna, but never removed his men from Amphipolis. This kind of bold aggression and blatant deceit allowed Philip to consolidate his power while making large gains. Combined with the conquest of a number of smaller states around Macedonia, Philip had accomplished the first step in uniting Greece. Now he was ready to go south. The Macedonian king understood that if he moved his army south, without an airtight excuse, he would get the alarm bells ringing in every Greek agora. He needed some reason that was compelling and believable enough to allow him to openly sneak up on the Greeks. Lucky for Philip, it, was, it just so happened that the Delphic Amphictani, again, I probably butchered that, was looking for help settling a dispute with their opposite numbers in Amphesia. Whether this call for aid actually happened or was the party line spread by the Macedonians, we don't actually know. But the excuse to move the Macedonian army closer to Thebes and Athens worked. Knowing that Sparta, who was on the back nine and was still licking her wounds from the Battle of Leuctra, would in all likelihood remain a non-factor, Philip realized his primary target would be Athens. He wanted to squash the maritime juggernaut before she could get her sea legs under her again and begin to really throw her weight around. In order to get to Athens, though, one of two things needed to happen for the Macedonians. Either Thebes could join the cause, or they would need to be beaten into, into submission. Ever the pragmatist and keenly aware that his men would be harder to replace effectively, Philip sent an envoy to Thebes earnestly looking for an alliance against Athens, or at the very least to allow his men to cross Theban land unhindered. It's at this very moment the scene we read at the top, thanks to Diodorus Siculus, was playing out in Athens. The city had erupted into chaos and fear at the news that Philip had finally made the move south, and there seemed to be no notion of what needed to happen next. That's when Athens finally took heed of the man who had spent the better part of two decades playing his own version of Cassandra, warning everyone of the danger, convincing no one. Demosthenes had seen Philip for the conqueror he was almost from the beginning of his reign. Demosthenes recognized that the free Greek world, where each city set their own path and governed in the fashion they saw best, would wither and die if Philip were not dealt with. Unfortunately for Demosthenes, when the mask finally came off and the danger was palpable, time seemed to be running far too short. When the decision was made to send an envoy to Thebes to beg their support in the fight, the only man asked went, and he went without delay. Demosthenes arrived too late to plead his case first, 
but was able to witness the Macedonian envoys, and he realized it was a fair offer and asked little to nothing of the Boeotians, which meant it was a pretty damn tempting offer. Demosthenes would need to make an offer the Thebans simply could not refuse, and that is exactly what he did. The Athenian gave up everything, swearing to accept Theban dominance over the Boeotian League, that Athens would pay for two-thirds of the land war, and all of the naval costs, as well as Thebes having command of the land forces and allowing the military headquarters of the, the alliance to be at Thebes. Thebes basically liked what they heard and allied themselves with Athens. One of the reasons Greece had all these little city-states pop up and thrive was a function of the geography. Greece is a tough place to campaign. Mountainous and craggy, there were few easy travel routes for large bodies of men, and those routes were well-known and easy to defend. See Thermopylae. That being the case, the now-allied Greek cities of Thebes and Athens quickly moved blocking forces to the most vital passes at Peripatomi and Gravia, in order basically to block access to the Gulf of Corinth. Philip would be unable to dislodge even a much smaller force from such solid defensive positions, unless, of course, he could catch the defenders off guard or somehow find a way to move them off of their positions. And that's exactly what he set about doing. After a period of time with the passes under semi-siege, Philip sent a sham letter to his general Antipater, stating that there was unrest in the north and that he was uh, going to turn around, go back to Macedonia to sort matters out. He made no real attempt at disguising his troop movements and actively wanted the enemy to be aware of the letter and his dispositions. Having spent a good deal of time doing nothing but watching Philip's army, the defenders fell for the simple ruse and were sufficiently lulled to fall to a swift night attack by some of Philip's crack troops. Once one pass fell, it was a matter of time for the others, the defenders now having to fight off men from the front and the rear of their positions. The Macedonians' path to Athens was open, and Philip was that much closer to completing the conquest of Greece. The Greek coalition army met the Macedonians outside the small town of Chaeronea. The Greek army was led by Theagnes of Thebes and Charas of Athens. Now, fair warning, uh, side note here. We will see with most battles up until the last few hundred years, numbers of troops and casualties and people involved will vary wildly. Accuracy is essentially impossible, so I will give the most likely range and let's just let it rest at that. So, the Greeks had between 20 and 30,000 with around 1 to 2,000 cavalry which they used in, or, or they displaced in a very basic role, either uh, scouting or covering the flanks. The Greeks also had the vaunted sacred band, and it's worth taking a quick second to kind of go over what the sacred band was. 
The Sacred Band was founded by Gorgadas, a Theban general in 378, after throwing the last remnants of Sparta out of the Theban citadel. They were a, uh, essentially a crack force of highly trained hoplites who also happened to be uh, lovers that lived together, according to Xenophon, as, quote, man and wife, end quote. Counting off at 150 couples of lovers, to be exact, and in most cases, the couples would have been hand-picked by their leader, the older man being named the Erastes, or lover, and the younger being the Eremonas, or beloved. The thing to keep in mind is these men were recruited into the unit around the age of 20 and mustered out at 30. So they really were perfectly healthy, uh, consensual, homosexual relationships. The thought process behind having lovers that fight side by side was actually uh, a fairly sound one. The belief was that the fear of shame in defeat or of losing to uh, uh, chaos or, or rout, uh, of losing the one that you love, would keep partners from retreating or showing weakness in the face of the enemy. And this theory was rewarded in 375 at the Battle of Tegera, or Tegra, when after stumbling upon a much larger force of Spartans, the sacred band was uh, victorious. And again, at the major Battle of Leuctra, where they were the spear point of the Theban victory, they proved that the idea behind the sacred band was a sound one. At Chaeronea, the sacred band would play a pivotal and ultimately the final role in their unique history. The Macedonian army had a similar, if not slightly larger army of 30 to 35,000 infantry, along with 3,000 cavalry some of which was made of heavy cavalry called the Heteroi. Again, Macedonia took to the horse much earlier and with more inspiration than the Greeks and really embraced the shock cavalry tactics of the time. In a latter battle cast, we will go into them further, but from here on out, I will call them by the name history remembers them most by, I'll call them the Companions. The two similarly sized armies met on August 2nd or maybe September 1st, and much like troop numbers, the exact dating of the ancient events can be tricky at best, so it's a, a bit of a uh, pointless exercise to try and figure out on what exact day. We're going to go with August 2nd, and the coalition army was lined up across the field of Chaeronea, and it essentially had its flanks secured with the local Acropolis on one end and the, rith- uh, the river uh, Cephesus on the other end of the line. The Athenians took up a position on the left, the traditional strongest part of the line. The assorted minor allies were positioned in the center, where they could be monitored by both Athens and Thebes. And the Thebans rounded out the line on the right end with the sacred band at the very extreme of the line. This was a fairly shrewd deployment. Uh, It was putting the best single unit on the field at their most vulnerable spot, allowing the Greek generals a little bit more tactical freedom than they might otherwise have had. 
Philip took his position directly across from the Athenians, while his teenage son, Alexander, and his companions formed up in front of the Thebans. It's telling that although he trusted his son at this point, Philip still had a group of his best generals shadow Alexander, just in case any youthful impetuousness jeopardized the strength of his battle line. Philip moved first, engaging the Athenians in oblique fashion, just like Epaminondas would have taught him all those years before. Unlike his teacher, however, Philip's line would have been roughly 16 to 25 rows deep, nowhere near the famous 50-plus rows deep of Lutra. The initial clash between two phalanxes must have been a shattering place for the senses. The noise would have been overpowering between the clamor of equipment, the twittering of horns, the pounding of hooves and feet, and the shouts of unlucky men quickly turning into the screams of the wounded. The amount of dust and dirt kicked up by the stamp of thousands of feet is impossible to imagine, and would have clogged nostrils, blinded eyes, and dried out tongues almost immediately. You can imagine the, the glint off of the spearheads held 20 feet high, being blinding, and the twitchy, animalistic fear the Greeks must have felt trying to dodge the Sarisa blades stabbing at their faces, all the while knowing they had no way to retaliate. Diodorus says the opening stages were, quote, hotly contested for a long time, and many fell on both sides, so that for a while the struggle permitted hopes of victory to both, end quote. Seeing that movement was stalled out and something had to be done, Philip decided to use deception once again. He ordered a false retreat, his men slowly disengaging from their enemy and marching away from the site of initial contact. Feigned retreats are incredibly dangerous and have throughout history often ended in exactly what they were uh, attempting to simulate. But here we see the success of Philip's professional army, maneuvering as they had trained, cohesively and as one. The ploy worked and the green Athenian forces moved off of their stronger high ground positions to give chase, thinking they were on the verge of a great victory. This would prove the undoing of the entire army that day. Immediately, the dominoes began to fall. A gap began to grow between the pursuing Athenian left and the allied center. Believing they were fixing the problem, the men in the center started to drift towards the gap to close it. This, however, created an even larger gap between the center and the right-hand side of the allied line. And it's a gap in this line that was essentially... Basically, the, these kind of gaps and battle lines were like catnip for Alexander. He could, not, uh, he, he could not avoid charging into them. And so, like in his later battles, Alexander charged into this opening with his companion cavalry. And uh, like lightning, he essentially began setting off a chain of events that would doom the entire coalition army. While the Macedonian cavalry was sweeping around to take the Greek phalanx in the rear... Philip timed his counterattack for exactly the right moment, when his men were on a slight rise and would be attacking down 
and probably even more importantly, when the raw men of Athens were exhausted from hauling tail in full gear at top speed. They were sapped, drained. The counterattack was timed perfectly with Alexander's charge, and the Greek line began to melt. Overwhelmed and with chaos erupting all around, the coalition quickly became an every-man-for-himself situation, leaving small, disciplined, but heavily outnumbered units isolated, intact only long enough to be annihilated. One of these units was the Sacred Band, who had been hit from all sides by Macedonian infantry, light cavalry, and even the Companions. Surrounded and unwilling to surrender due to their oaths, they fell almost to the man. We can assume, given the duration of the initial encounter, casualties were probably fairly high on both sides. Athens is said to have lost a thousand dead and two thousand maybe captured, which makes me think, given the nature of false retreats, that the Macedonians probably suffered something between a thousand and fifteen hundred casualties of their own. The Thebans uh, would have suffered similarly. Diodorus Siculus saying they had, quote, many killed and not a few injured, end quote. The sacred band, however, was wiped out. Found under a funerary marker were 254 remains, had seemingly been buried in couples, which lines up fairly well with the number of uh, 46 sacred band prisoners that were taken by, according to the ancient sources. So of the 346 were uh, survived and 254 were buried. And actually, if you go to the site of the battle now, there's a marker uh, on the spot where those 254 remains were found. And it's a giant lion statue that bears no inscription, but apparently it stands as a testament to the fierce pride and bravery of all these fallen lovers. At Chaeronea, Philip had won a truly decisive victory, and he immediately went about the business of unifying Greece behind him for his push into Persia. He created the League of Corinth, which cemented Macedonian hegemony, and effectively ended up uh, basically destroying any Greek military opposition. As for Athens and Thebes, Philip chose to use the carrot and the stick method of conciliation. Athenian prisoners were returned without ransom. Alexander personally brought the ashes of the fallen of Athens and uh, to the city of Athens and allowed proper burials to take place. Athens was also allowed to keep the key island possessions of Lemnos and Delos, as well as other economically vital colonies. Thebes was uh, not so lucky. Having all the leaders involved in the decision to ally with Athens killed, and then having uh, basically their entire oligarchy replaced by picked uh, choices of, of uh, the Macedonians, Essentially, the government of Thebes was stacked with 300 Macedonian supporters. 
They, the Thebans lost any power they had within the Boeotian League and struggled to obtain permission even to just simply bury their battle dead. All the Th- Theban prisoners were sold into slavery, and as a final dig, Thebes would need to allow a Macedonian garrison in their city's citadel. The harsh penalties enforced on Thebes by Philip were a preview of things to come later from Alexander. Having beaten the main Greek cities into submission, Philip now had the way clear to rule over a united Greece and was one step closer to his ultimate goal, destroying Persia. Part of the peace he had negotiated were stipulations on the various amounts of money and men to be sent to him for use in his grand campaign. In fact, with his backyard safe and under control, Philip had already sent his best general, Parmenio, across the Hellespont to establish a foothold for when he was uh, uh, ready to move against the Persians. But it was before he could get that rolling that he was assassinated in his capital city of Virginia. Struck down by one of his own bodyguards, Philip would never see Persia or complete his dream of a world empire. His son, however... Using the professional army and the Sarissa he had inherited from his father would go on to exceed his father's wildest dreams, conquering everything in his path all the way to modern-day India, and in the process, earning himself the name Alexander the Great. Now, for the fun stuff, the what-if stuff, go to cauldronpodcast.com and submit on the Your Theories page, or you can submit on Instagram or Facebook or any of the social media things. Send in what you think that the world would look like if Philip had lost at the Battle of Chaeronea, or Alexander had been killed at the Battle of Chaeronea. Any possible things. Send in what you think might have happened or how you would have won the day. Kind of try and keep your submissions uh, somewhat concise and try and keep them pertinent to the latest episode if you can. The most interesting of these emails and these uh, little thoughts and input will go up on the next TheoryCast. We're going to try and do two a month, so send them in and, uh, and we'll get them up for you. For interesting articles, images, discussions, check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Just go to Cauldron Podcast. And for a little peek inside at what I'm currently reading or a look at the uh, the list of sources, always check out the bibliography or the, the library section of the website. And again, that's cauldronpodcast.com. All right. I enjoyed that. That was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed it too. I hope you learned a little bit. I certainly did. Next up, we have the uh, Portuguese Navy trying to crack the spice trade off the Indian coast. And um, that should be coming right up, so stay tuned. All right, enjoy. Have a great week. We'll talk to you next time.